Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 132. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's Laura Reagan, LCSWC, with today's episode. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Are you going through menopause or perimenopause? It can be a struggle to find comfort in your body with night sweats, hot flashes, and so many other uncomfortable symptoms. Hormone Harmony is a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause created by Happy Mammoth. They are dedicated to making women's lives easier using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout women's lives. So hormone harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time. For a limited time, you can get 15% off on your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CHAT at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code CHAT for 15% off today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. If you've listened to this podcast much, you know that I talk about trauma all the time. I'm a trauma therapist and it's my passion. And I got started in this work when I volunteered at a sexual assault crisis center when I lived in Virginia. Now, I don't know if you know what a sexual assault crisis center is, but I didn't when I started. In fact, I saw a marquee sign when I was finishing my bachelor's degree that said volunteers wanted at my local YWCA and I went in and applied and didn't even know that it was for a sexual assault crisis center because I didn't know that existed. 
I knew about sexual assault and rape. I had heard about it as a woman ever since I can remember, you know, I was told you have to watch out. Someone might try to rape you, which is kind of sad that that's what we tell kids and that that's the reality of our culture. But I was very well aware of sexual assault and rape, but not that there were sexual assault crisis centers that helped people after they were raped or sexually assaulted. So I went in, found out what it was all about, and I was like, that sounds interesting. That would be some great experience in counseling. Let me, let me uh, go through this volunteer training. So I went through an extensive volunteer training that was 40 hours long that I you know, went in on evenings twice a week and all day Saturday for a few weeks. And I learned so much about trauma in that process, which was kind of new because that was back in 2002. And not all of the sexual assault crisis center programs were really trauma informed at that time. I was just very fortunate to work at one that was. So I volunteered there for a year and a half. And then I ended up working there for three years until we moved here to Maryland. I'm pretty passionate about the issue of sexual assault and April is sexual assault awareness month. So I want to tell you some information that might be helpful for you or someone you know regarding sexual assault. I don't think people really like to talk about it, but it's a reality in our, in fact, statistics indicate that one in four women and one in six men will be sexually assaulted at some point over the lifespan. It's an all too common problem. And just being aware of the reality of it and what to do if it happens to you could make a difference. So with April being Sexual Assault Awareness Month, here I go. So I'm going to break down sexual assault into two major types. And when I say sexual assault, I'm including rape and any other unwanted sexual touching or act, just using the blanket sexual assault term. So I'm going to break it down into childhood sexual abuse and sexual assault or rape, and I'll explain the difference between those two as I'm using in this episode, just for clarity because there are differences in how you can address each one. So today I'm going to focus on sexual assault and rape when the victim is not a child. This could include a teenager who is sexually assaulted, but it's not a child abuse situation. It's a straight up sexual assault or rape. So if you are sexually assaulted, what can you do? What are your options? This is something that you need to know before it happens. It's harder to think when you've experienced a trauma, but if you know ahead of time how to address it, if it happens to you or someone you care about, or even someone you don't care about, it's good to know what's available. So the first thing you can do is call a sexual assault crisis hotline. Everywhere there are 24-hour sexual assault hotlines, and they're staffed by trained people who understand the issues of sexual assault, and they also know the local laws. They know the local procedures. 
for addressing sexual assault. So wherever you are, you can call the RAIN hotline, and that's the R-A-I-N-N, Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, RAIN. Um, they're at RAIN, R-A-I-N-N dot org. And you can call the RAIN hotline, and wherever you are, it will, it will connect to the local Sexual Assault Crisis Center to where you are. And I think it's based by your phone's area code. So if you're using a cell phone that has an area code from another location, it may connect you to that location if that happens. Um, you know, and it's not, you don't get the information you need for your local area, because not every question is local. Um, then you can go online and search for a sexual assault crisis center near you. They are in every state in our in the U.S. and they're available in many other places around the world. Usually, sexual assault crisis centers offer free services to victims of sexual assault. And I'm using the word victim. In my mind, victim means when someone has just been sexually assaulted. They're not yet a survivor because no time has passed. But, you know, you're a survivor after it's happened. But when it happens, I would say victim because you're being victimized. Um, so I just, you know, I say survivor most of the time, but if um, someone has just been sexually assaulted, I would call them a victim of sexual assault. Calling a 24-hour sexual assault crisis hotline, you can ask questions about what to do. They can help with how you feel emotionally. They can let you know what your options are for collecting evidence if you'd like to consider possibly reporting it or even if you don't want to. You can have the evidence collected and saved and if you change your mind and you do decide you want to report it to the police then you can do so. In all 50 states in the United States you are able to get a forensic evidence collection exam following a sexual assault at no cost to you and without a requirement that you report the offense to the police. Some places require the police to be involved, but they don't get, the information is collected anonymously, and so there's no requirement that you actually file a report. And you can ask your local sexual assault crisis center when you call that hotline, do I have to speak to the police if I want to get evidence collected? And they can tell you about the local policy. Now, there are time limitations within which you can get this forensic exam done. Forensic exams usually need to be done within 120 hours of the sexual assault. So that adds up to five days. Um, that's the national standard. Not every forensic nursing program follows the national standard. Some will do it when more time has passed and some limit the time to a tighter time frame. That's another thing that you can ask the sexual assault crisis hotline in your local area if you're thinking about getting a forensic exam done and they should know the answer or be able to help you find it. 
Now, what is a forensic exam that I'm talking about? A forensic exam is not you going to the doctor and the doctor checking you out to see if you're medically okay. It's a specialized nurse called a sexual assault forensic examiner or a forensic nurse examiner. But forensic means their evidence collection. A forensic nurse can conduct an evidence collection exam, collect evidence to determine whether there's enough information to prove that a sexual assault occurred. So if you're thinking about getting a forensic evidence collection exam done, you have to be aware that there are some time limitations, that it's best if you don't shower before getting the exam done, but having taken a shower does not mean that you can't collect evidence. It's going to be up to the details of the situation and the forensic nurse's discretion whether they will conduct the exam if you've taken a shower. I mean, sometimes people just don't know you're not supposed to take a shower. And depending on what evidence might be there, it could still be present, even after a shower. But ideally, if you don't take a shower, be aware of the time frames that you know, as soon as possible after the assault and hopefully within 120 hours afterwards, um, you have the best chance of being able to collect evidence and hold the person accountable if you choose to report it. Choosing whether or not to report a sexual assault to the police is a very personal choice. And I think it's important for friends and loved ones of survivors to understand that it is up to the individual person whether or not they want to report to the police. I mean, we all want people who do bad things to be held accountable, but only the survivor knows if they want to tell their story and try to um, prosecute the person for what they did. When someone is sexually assaulted, the offender is trying to take away their power and control. So that survivor needs to have their power and control honored. It's their story, and they are the ones who have power over who they tell. So if you're a friend or family member of someone who's been sexually assaulted, and they entrust you with that information, please follow what End Violence Against Women International recommends and start by believing. Just go ahead and believe them. We don't want to believe that things like that happen, but they do. And if someone entrusts you with that information, they must really trust you. And if you just go ahead and believe them, they'll be much more likely to feel supported than if you question you know, their recounting of the details of the incident or how much they want to talk about it or how they seem if they don't seem to you like they're as upset as you think they should be. You have to be aware that when someone is sexually assaulted, it's a traumatic event. And when people have experienced trauma in that crisis following the traumatic experience, they don't act the way you expect them to. If you're not traumatized and you're talking to someone who has just experienced a trauma, you might really not understand why they're saying and doing the things they're saying and doing. But if they told you that something terrible happened to them, 
just go ahead and believe them. And you can get more information about the Start by Believing campaign on the End Violence Against Women International website, which is avawintl.org. And I'll have that in the show notes. Now, if you've been sexually assaulted and you want to know, you want some help and you don't know what to do, it's great to tell a trusted friend, but be sure to select the person that you tell is someone who you feel will be supportive because one of the biggest factors influencing how people recover from trauma is the reaction of the first people they tell. If they're believed and supported, they tend to recover very well. If they're not believed and they're not supported, it makes it more complicated for the recovery process to happen. Now, I also want to let you know that I mentioned reporting options for people who are sexually assaulted and want to get a forensic exam. I was talking about your local policies related to the area where you live. Typically, you can go to a hospital, but not every hospital has a forensic nurse examiner on staff. So if you show up at your local ER and you don't know if they have a forensic examiner there, you may wait for a while and then end up having to go to a different hospital to have the exam done. There again, that's something that the sexual assault crisis hotline should be able to help you with because they should know at least which hospitals have forensic exams available, which hospitals have forensic examiners on staff, Um, It doesn't mean that when you get there, there will be a forensic nurse available because some hospitals don't have their sexual assault programs staffed as well as we would all like. Unfortunately, it's a a high demand area and, um, you know, with 24-7 coverage, it's not always possible for someone to be on staff in every program. But... The Sexual Assault Crisis Center can help you to find out which hospital to go to, and they typically offer advocates who can go with you to the hospital, and they can help you understand your options and explain the choices because, again, when you've experienced a traumatic event, it's very overwhelming to understand a process that you've never been a part of before, and there's a lot of details and decisions and the decisions are important and it can be overwhelming. So the advocates that the Sexual Assault Crisis Center programs offer can be an invaluable resource and their services are free. They have information, moral support, crisis counseling, um, help for loved ones of survivors and friends who might come along to the hospital and And they have so much information. They're very well trained. Like I said, I had to take a 40-hour training. That's a long training for a volunteer to attend. It's like a full week of work. But it was needed because it's very complex. And it was so worth it. Oh, man, it was so rewarding to be able to accompany people through that process and help them feel empowered to make decisions and know what their rights are. Now, if you are in the military, 
you have a military sexual assault process as well. So in addition to your options to have either a report to the police or an anonymous forensic exam done out in the local community, you also have the option to report within the military if the offender was in the military or if you're in the military, there's someone to serve you and help you um, know what your rights are and what your options are. You don't have to get them involved, but it's an option. And sometimes people like to use their, their own in-house programs because it feels more comfortable, especially if you're stationed in a place that you don't know, you know, the local area. Um, so that's something to be aware of. And if you're in the military, you probably know that. But just in case, I'm mentioning it. And if you're in a college or university, you probably also have an in-house sexual assault reporting process. Now, in a college or university, they are not going to pursue a criminal process through the college or university. They will have their own, what you would call an extrajudicial process that is not a legal process that involves the person being charged with a crime, convicted in a court, and sentenced, you know, in um, by the state. Instead, it would be a um, hearing process, and there are a lot of different ways that schools can do it, so I'm not going to say exactly how it goes, but students have rights through Title IX to... Um, be able to report a sexual assault and ask for certain things that they may need in recovering from a sexual assault. So since sexual assault and rape are very, you know, there's a high prevalence of sexual assault and rape in college, um, it's important to know that you have those options and depending on the details of the situation, it may or may not fall under your college's um, program, but every school has someone who's responsible for providing information about the Title IX rights of, of every student. Therapist, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night, oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used Therapy Notes for six years, and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is, if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my Issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code CHAT to get two free months. The Institute for Creative Mindfulness is the EMDR therapy training brainchild of Dr. Jamie Marich, a clinician and author who's on a mission to confront stigma around mental health, trauma, and dissociation. The Institute, informed by Jamie's work, teaches a somatic, expressive, 
bottom-up approach to EMDR therapy that does not treat dissociation like a dirty word. ICM empowers their students to navigate dissociation as a normal response to trauma and stress when it shows up. Dr. Jamie Marich is out and proud on various levels about her own recovery and is a strong believer in the healing capacities of EMDR therapy and helping our clients to heal from the impact of trauma. I and two of my team members have been trained by the Institute for Creative Mindfulness directly with Jamie, and I was impressed with how dissociation really was treated as just a normal aspect of trauma therapy work, which it is. Both Jamie and the consultants were matter of fact about if and when dissociation arises, it's okay, it's normal, and here's how you can help the client in that situation. The Institute for Creative Mindfulness is offering a coupon code to save 15% off any program offered by ICM. This includes their EMDR therapy basic training programs and a wide variety of their home study, advanced topics, and other CE offerings. Go to instituteforcreativemindfulness.com and use promo code 15 for listeners. There's a link in the show notes. You can copy the promo code and use the link right there in the show notes to make it easy. know that small actions can make a big difference in our lives. I know for me, I can be in a terrible mood, go out somewhere and see a stranger, make eye contact and just smile at them and find suddenly I feel good. Whether it's practicing mindfulness a few minutes each day, movement practices, small actions can have big benefits, like how taking care of your gut can support whole body health. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits your gut, skin, and heart health in just two little capsules a day. Your body is an ecosystem and great health starts in the gut. Your gut is a central hub for various pathways through the body and a healthy gut microbiome means benefits for digestion, skin health, heart health, our immune systems, and more. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash living and use code 25living to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash living, code 25living. Now, Title IX is not only for women. Um, The services for survivors of sexual assault in college are for everyone. They're not gender specific. And as I mentioned, one in four men have been sexually assaulted as well. Another option that people have outside of the criminal legal process is the civil legal process. So, for example, um, this is a perfect example that's very timely right now. Andrea Konstad, who was the woman who came forward and said that she was sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby, she reported this to the police back. The police said there wasn't enough evidence to initiate a, a prosecution. However, she was able to pursue a civil case and there was a financial settlement that was made in the civil case. So in her case, she was not able to pursue a criminal conviction of the person whom she said sexually assaulted her. But in civil court, she was able to obtain a settlement in which, you know, I don't know the terms of it, but, um, 
there was a court process, even if it wasn't a criminal process, and that's the civil process. There are usually different statutes of limitations for criminal and civil cases, so that's important to know, and I'll have someone on who's going to be talking about that in detail in a future episode. Even if the criminal process cannot be pursued, does not automatically exclude the possibility that a civil legal process can happen and and in that way you can have a successful way of holding the person accountable. The Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault, which I'm a board member of, is an outstanding resource for information for survivors of sexual assault. And there's a very special reason that MCASA, as we call it for short, is so informative about sexual assault because in addition to the information about how survivors can get help following a sexual assault, which where the rape crisis centers are in Maryland, getting a forensic exam, information on other resources, what will happen during a forensic exam, different brochures, statistics. The Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault also has a legal institute called SALI, Sexual Assault Legal Institute, S-A-L-I. And SALI provides comprehensive legal services, including issues ranging from employment, housing, education, and financial support to criminal justice advocacy, immigration, and family law, and legal services to support survivor privacy, and safety. So Sally helps with civil legal services for survivors of sexual assault. And they they can potentially represent people in civil legal cases, as I mentioned before. Legal services for survivors of sexual assault are available in other places as well. And it depends on your local area whether there are any services available where you are. The best way to find out where there's a sexual assault crisis center near you nationwide is the RAIN website. Go to centers.rain.org and you can enter your state and zip code or zip code and it will tell you where you can find a sexual assault crisis center that usually offers free or low cost individual counseling, support groups, hospital accompaniment, the advocacy I mentioned, legal and criminal justice system advocacy, crime victim assistance advocacy, community education, um, practical assistance, sometimes emergency shelter, and if you wanted to get started volunteering, which I highly recommend, that's where you can do it is through your local sexual assault crisis center, which you can find on the RAIN website at centers.rain.org. Sexual assault crisis centers have specially trained staff who specifically understand the issues of survivors of sexual assault. And it's not just the same as general therapy or counseling. When you work with a counselor therapist who has specific experience and training in helping people who've experienced sexual assault. It's really helpful. Okay, so just real quick, I'm going to talk to you about how people often react following a sexual assault and um, when to know that, you know, it might be helpful to get some professional help. Because a lot of times when people are sexually assaulted, they don't tell anyone. And 
it's still affecting them years and years later and they don't realize that it's from the sexual assault but it's a trauma so everyone's different so i'm going to list some some common reactions and this is from the Medical University of South Carolina website. If you don't feel some of these feelings or you have other feelings that aren't the same, this is just a general list. And it could be any of these responses. Feeling fear, feeling out of control, having flashbacks, which is re-experiencing the assault over and over in your thoughts or dreams as if it's happening again. It's like you're watching a movie and you're seeing what happened. Having trouble concentrating, memory issues, and um, feeling scattered, feeling guilty, blaming yourself for being out so late or how much you had to drink. And it's not your fault no matter what. It's because it's the other person who sexually assaulted you that's to blame for this. Sometimes people feel dirty, wanting to take frequent showers, feeling sad or depressed, Loss of interest in things that you used to enjoy. Increased conflicts in your relationships. Not being interested in sex. These are normal reactions to a traumatic event. But if you're having flashbacks, trouble sleeping, and it's gone on for more than you know a week or two after the assault, it may be helpful to get some professional guidance to, to cope with those reactions. Because trauma is not something you can just get over on your own. And not everyone who experiences a traumatic event has trauma symptoms afterwards. But if you do, and they don't go away by themselves and starts to interfere with your functioning, you know, school, work, relationships, you're numbing more, you're trying to avoid thinking about it, but it keeps popping up. Um, it can it can help to get therapy or counseling either at a sexual assault crisis center for free or with a therapist who has training and specific experience in sexual assault. So I will list all the websites I mentioned in the show notes. And since it's April, I'm going to talk about a few things that you can do to support efforts to end sexual violence. One is find out where the monument quilt is in your area. The monument quilt is a crowdsourced collection of thousands of stories of survivors placed on squares and stitched together to make a quilt. It's a very powerful display and I saw it two years ago. It's probably much bigger now because it's constantly being added to. And you can go on the monumentquilt.org and find out where it will be displayed. There will be one this weekend in Baltimore, so I don't know um, when you'll be listening to this, but on April 9th and the rain day is April 10th 2016 there will be a display of the monument quilt in Baltimore on North Avenue between Charles and Howard streets you can go to a production of the vagina monologues not in April because they usually do that in February on Valentine's Day but sometimes it goes on throughout the year or the other play by Eve Ensler that supports sexual violence is a memory, a monologue, a rant, and a prayer. And you can get information about that on vday.org. That's Eve Ensler's global movement to end violence against women and girls. Although sexual assault affects people of all genders, so 
ending sexual violence helps everyone. Another thing you can do if you want to support the movement to stop sexual violence is find out if you can volunteer at your local sexual assault crisis center. Make a donation to your local sexual assault crisis center or your statewide sexual assault coalition. These programs are woefully underfunded and um, they can use all the help they can get financially. There are usually Take Back the Night events throughout the month of April put on by local communities and sexual assault crisis centers and colleges. Um, so you can look to see um, where that would be. Just Google Take Back the Night and see if there's anything going on in your community. In Washington, D.C. on April 21st at 6 p.m., at the Milken Institute School of Public Health, there's a screening of a film called Sold, which is about child sex trafficking. Another event that is often put on during Sexual Assault Awareness Month is called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes, and it's a mile walk in which men wear high heels to understand the experience of being a woman. And there's awareness raised um, through information about sexual assault, and funds are raised. Another thing is the Clothesline Project. The Clothesline Project is a display of t-shirts. It's kind of the same idea as the Monument Quilt, It's but it's um, survivors decorate t-shirts to share something either about their emotions or their story, and they're displayed. And when they're hung next to one another on the clothesline, it's really haunting to see just the pain represented there. And also there's stories of triumph, but it's kind of one of those things that just makes you realize how big this problem is. So you can go to the clothesline project, I'm sorry, clotheslineproject.org and um, see where the clothesline project will be displayed near you. It's often done at colleges and universities, but not only in those places. So those are some of the ways that you can get involved during Sexual Assault Awareness Month or any time to help support the movement to end sexual violence. I think it's really important. I know far too many people affected by sexual assault in both my personal life and in my work life, of course, because I work with a lot of survivors. It's something that can be stopped. And, you know, as the campaign says, it's on us. We're all responsible for ending this problem. And I hope this podcast episode on Sexual Assault Awareness Month has been helpful. The next episode about sexual assault this month will be on childhood sexual abuse. And I'll talk about the specific issues of adults who were sexually abused in childhood and what we can do to prevent childhood sexual abuse. Till then, thanks so much for listening. Please go on iTunes and leave a rating and review. I appreciate every one of you who are listening, and I'll be back next time. Take care. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today is my last episode of Sexual Assault Awareness Month 2016, the month of April. And as promised, this is my part two discussion of sexual assault. Since it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month, in my previous episode on this subject, I talked about sexual assault that occurs when 
both people are peers, older teens or adults. And for part two, I said I was going to talk about childhood sexual abuse. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about what is childhood sexual abuse? How commonly does it occur? Who can it happen to? Are there any groups that are at higher risk than others? What are the effects of childhood sexual abuse? How to prevent childhood sexual abuse? How to get help if you suspect that a child has been abused and how you can get help if you're an adult who experienced sexual abuse in childhood. So I'm getting this information from websites that I'll reference so that you can go there and find more if you want the information for yourself or someone you care about. So we'll start by defining child sexual abuse. Child sexual abuse is a form of child abuse, including sexual activity with a minor. Children cannot consent to any form of sexual activity. So even if a child does not say no or resist, they're not consenting because they're a child. Child sexual abuse is not always physical contact between the offender and the child. There are many different forms it can take. It can include obscene phone calls, text messages, or other digital or online interaction, fondling, exhibitionism or exposing oneself to a minor, masturbating in the presence of a minor or forcing the child to masturbate, intercourse, any type of sex with a minor, vaginal, oral, or anal, producing, owning, or sharing pornographic images or or movies of children, sex trafficking, so, for example, forcing a child to be a prostitute, and any other sexual conduct that is harmful to a child's mental, emotional, or physical welfare. This comes from the RAIN website. RAIN is the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, and their website is rainn.org. So the people who commit child sexual abuse, the perpetrators, are usually someone that is known to the child or family. In at least 93% of cases where a victim is under the age of 18, they know the person who does it to them. This does not have to be an adult harming the child. It can be anyone with a relationship to the child, including an older sibling or playmate, other family member, teacher, coach, caregiver, babysitter, another child's parent. And child sexual abuse is an adult exploiting a child's vulnerability. And it's important to recognize that the sexual orientation, meaning whether the offender is heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, transsexual, transgender, has nothing to do with them being a child abuser. There's no more likelihood that any sexual orientation will be likely to sexually abuse a child. In other words, a man who sexually abuses a boy is not 
doing so because he is gay. He's doing so because he's a child sexual abuse perpetrator. So I want to talk about the statistics on child sexual abuse because I think a lot of us still believe that it's not that common yet. Um, you know, I know so many people who've been sexually abused in childhood. And, um, of course that's a, a focus area in my work. So in my, in my work, I know many people who've been sexually abused, but in my personal life, I knew many people as well. It's far more common than most people realize. And because sexual childhood sexual abuse is frequently never reported to the police or authorities, the statistics we have are pretty much recognized to underrepresent the actual incidents of how commonly sexual childhood sexual abuse occurs. David Finkelhor has done a lot of research on victimization and he's the director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center. He has released studies stating that one in five girls and one in 20 boys experience childhood sexual abuse. Um, 20% of adult females and 5 to 10% of adult males say that they can recall a sexual assault or sexual abuse that occurred during their childhood. And a 2003 National Institute of Justice report said that three out of four adolescents who have been sexually assaulted were victimized by someone they knew well. An added effect of childhood sexual abuse is that when a child has been sexually abused, they may become more likely to be victimized in the future. One study conducted in 1986, which was followed up by studies in 2000, 2002, and 2005, found that 63% of women who had suffered sexual abuse by a family member also reported a rape or attempted rape after they were 14 or older. Um, Children who had an experience of rape or attempted rape in their adolescent years were 13 times more likely to experience rape or attempted rape in their first year of college. Children who don't live with both parents, as well as children living in homes marked by parental discord, divorce, or domestic violence have a higher risk of being sexually abused. Compared to those with no history of sexual abuse, young males who were sexually abused were five times more likely to cause teen pregnancy, three times more likely to have multiple sexual partners, and two times more likely to have unprotected sex, according to a study published in the Journal of Adolescent Health. Everybody wants to know who are the people that do this. Offenders are most likely male, ranging from adolescents to the elderly, but some perpetrators are female. It's estimated that women are the abusers in about 14% of cases in which boys are the victims and 6% of cases involving female victims. Approximately one-third of offenders are juveniles. 40 to 80% of juvenile sex offenders have themselves been victims of sexual abuse. These stats came from the National Center for Victims of Crime, which is victimsofcrime.org. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's important to recognize that child sexual abuse offenders tend to use a grooming process 
to gradually draw a victim into a sexual relationship and maintain that relationship in secrecy. And part of the grooming process is that they may fill roles within the victim's family that make the offender trusted and valued, making it extremely difficult for the child to report what's happening to the family because the family trusts that person. Grooming behaviors can include special attention, outings and gifts, isolating the child from others, filling the child's unmet needs, filling needs and roles within the family, treating the child as if he or she is older, gradually crossing physical boundaries and becoming increasingly intimate or sexual, use of secrecy, blame, and threats to maintain control. And some of the factors that perpetrators have said they look for, specifically these characteristics in children they choose to target for abuse. They report that they look for passive, quiet, troubled, lonely children from single parent or quote-unquote broken homes. Perpetrators frequently seek out children who are particularly trusting, which most children are. They find new ways and work proactively to establish a trusting relationship with the child before abusing them. Frequently, this extends to establishing a trusting relationship with the victim's family, too, making the child feel trapped. So this information comes from Darkness to Light. Their website is d2l.org. So what are the effects of child sexual abuse? In childhood, you will see um, some of these effects, and it varies from person to person, but emotional and mental health problems, behavioral problems including physical aggression, oppositional behavior, um, risky behavior, Sexual behavior problems and over-sexualized behavior are very common. Children who have been sexually abused have three times as many sexual behavior problems as children who have not been sexually abused. And victims of child sexual abuse are more likely to be sexually promiscuous. Academic problems are common in children who have been sexually abused. They're more likely to drop out of school. Substance abuse problems beginning in childhood or adolescence are common. Adolescents who were sexually abused were two to three times more likely to have an alcohol use or dependence problem than non-victims. Delinquency and crime, stemming often from substance abuse, is more prevalent in adolescents with a history of child sexual abuse. Sexually abused children are twice as likely as children who have not been sexually abused to run away from home. They have higher risks of teen pregnancy. And the long-term consequences of childhood sexual abuse can include post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse problems, depression, anxiety, suicide attempts, obesity and eating disorders, higher rates of healthcare utilization, increased health complaints, a greater risk for a range of conditions that are non-life-threatening, including fibromyalgia, severe PMS, chronic headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, a wide range of reproductive and sexual health complaints, including excessive bleeding, 
amenorrhea, which I believe is when your period stops, pain during intercourse and menstrual irregularity. There's also been a link found to endometriosis. So not that everyone who has endometriosis has been sexually abused, but there was a higher incidence among people who have been sexually abused. Survivors of child sexual abuse have higher risk for more serious conditions like diabetes, cancer, heart problems, stroke, or hypertension. Male sexual abuse survivors have higher rates of HIV infection than non-abused males. The CDC recently estimated the lifetime burden of a new substantiated case of non-fatal child maltreatment, so that includes all types of abuse, to be $210,012 per person. Immediate costs as well as loss of productivity and increased health care costs were, were used to estimate that number. Only about a third of child sexual abuse cases are identified and even fewer are reported. So one thing that's important to recognize is that many people having some kind of sexual abuse and don't even realize that their experience falls into that category. And this is common too with sexual assault, which I was talking about in my previous part one. So many people have had an adult exposed their genitals to them in childhood and didn't know that that was considered a form of child sexual abuse or they may have they may have been molested by someone whom they trusted and they don't recognize that as an abusive situation they think that they participated but a 5-year-old, 10-year-old or even 15-year-old is not able to consent to having sexual activity with an adult, or even someone who's significantly older and not an adult. It's also really important to understand that sexual abuse is a traumatic experience. So if you have been sexually abused and it happened when you were eight and you're now 68 and you're still feeling like it affects you, that makes sense because it's a trauma and they don't just go away by themselves. I've talked with many people who were in their 50s and 60s and had never told anyone that they had been sexually abused and they'd been suffering silently with this experience of feeling shame, feeling alone, depressed, anxious, issues with intimacy, physical and emotional intimacy, problems with relationships, and they don't realize that they experienced a trauma all those years ago and it wasn't their fault. They could never tell anyone because they didn't have the words to use to describe what happened to them and they didn't feel they would be believed. So this brings us to the important subject of how to protect children from being sexually abused. It's not to say that it's the parent's fault if a child is sexually abused by someone who's not one of the parents, but there are things that we can do as parents to help protect children from being sexually abused. So I'm going to read this list. This is also from RAIN, R-A-I-N-N.org, under How Can I Protect My Child from Sexual Assault? Show interest in their day-to-day lives. 
Get to know the people in their lives. Choose caregivers carefully. It's always smart to consider if someone has a really extraordinary interest in children. You know, it's a red flag if there's a middle-aged adult, say, a 60-year-old man who doesn't have children or grandchildren, but invites children over to his house to play with him. That's a red flag because why does he want to play with children? That's, that doesn't make sense. If he had kids there that were his grandchildren or children, um, that would be different. But why would the, why would a man that age want to play with like a seven-year-old? That's, that's odd. And that should raise alarm bells. So listen to your gut on things like that. And it's not always about background checks and looking at the sex offender registry. Those things are important, but not foolproof ways to know whether or not um, a caregiver is safe for taking care of your child. Because just because they don't have a criminal record, they're not on the sexual sex offender registry doesn't mean that they have never done anything like that. So again, that's where your gut comes in handy. You know, how do you feel when you see this person with your child? How's your child seem to feel? So you can use the many media incidents which are covered on the news to open a discussion with your children about sexual assault. Ask open-ended questions like, have you ever heard of something like this happening? Or what would you do if you were in this situation? And know the warning signs of child sexual abuse. And notice any changes with your child, no matter how small. I'll go into what the warning signs are now. It's not always easy to tell when a child has been sexually abused. And the perpetrator could be someone you've known a long time, which would make it even harder to notice. But this is, again, where you trust your gut and you... You can sense if something's wrong with your child. Don't ignore that feeling if you have it. Some physical signs you may notice could be difficulty walking or sitting, bloody, torn, or stained underclothes, bleeding, bruises, or swelling in the genital area, pain, itching, or burning in the genital area, frequent urinary or yeast infections. Behavioral signs include child shrinks away or seems threatened by physical contact, Exhibit signs of depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. That's kind of hard to know in a child, but um, I would describe some of the symptoms of child um, post-traumatic stress disorder as being similar to the symptoms that people think of with ADHD. Um, trouble focusing, trouble sitting still, irritability, outbursts, anger, um, impulsivity. Those are some of the common reactions in children who have experienced some kind of trauma. If you're not sure, it's always good to talk to a therapist about that. Children expressing suicidal thoughts, especially adolescents, self-harming behaviors like cutting, burning oneself, pulling hair out, development of phobias, changes in school performance like dropping grades or refusing to go to school, changes in hygiene like refusing to bathe or excessive bathing, 
regressive behavior. Maybe they stopped sucking their thumb years before and they suddenly start again. Running away from home, overly protective of siblings, nightmares or bedwetting. Sometimes people think bedwetting means, oh, this child has wet the bed. They must have been sexually abused. It's not that clear cut. But if you suspect something's wrong with your child, that, you know, something's affecting them, something's bothering them, and you notice bedwetting, you know, again, listen to your gut. And inappropriate sexual knowledge or behaviors. If you see, if you see a child demonstrating or talking about sexual things that are really abnormal for their age, say a four-year-old who is describing intercourse, that child shouldn't know that much about it. Um, now, if you've talked to them about how sex happens, then of course that makes sense. But um, a young child who you haven't explained that to yet, and they're talking about it again, like that should raise your eyebrows, like what? And you just ask, where did you learn about that? In a very non-angry way, not blaming. Uh, another thing about that, using words or phrases that are too adult for their age. And if you're going to talk to a child who you suspect may have been sexually abused, you should talk to them if you're concerned. But create a non-threatening environment where the child may be more likely to open up to you. Pick your time and place in a place that they'll be comfortable and don't ask them about it in front of anyone who you might suspect could have caused the harm. Be aware of your tone. Don't be too serious. Try to make it casual and non-threatening. Speak directly using a child's vocabulary, but don't put words in their mouths. Asking, has anyone hurt you, could be confusing because what is happening may not be painful and they wouldn't know what you meant. Allow the child to speak freely. Avoid judgment and blame. For example, instead of saying, you said something that made me worry, you could say, I'm concerned because I heard you say you are not allowed to sleep in your bed by yourself. Reassure the child, letting them know they're not in trouble, but you're just asking questions because you care. And be patient and understand this may be very frightening for the child for you to ask, especially if they are being abused and someone has threatened them that they'll hurt someone they care about if the child tells anyone. I've seen children who were told, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. And they would not speak about what happened, but they could write it down. So, you know, that's important to understand that they are very fearful. If they're threatened, they're very fearful and may not be able to put it in perspective how likely that person it really is to do that whatever they threaten. Like if they say, I'll kill your whole family. If you tell the child's not necessarily going to be able to say logically, would that happen? Or would my parents keep me safe? If You know, keep us all safe. If I told that's the whole thing about it is that they fool kids and scare them and exploit their innocence and vulnerability. And that's how they're able to do what they do. So if you do think a child has been sexually abused, you can report it to the police or to um, Child Protective Services. 
You can find out what the laws are in your state by going to the RAIN website. They have a state law database. But let the child know that you're going to talk to someone who may who can help. Don't ask for their permission because you're the adult, so you just do it. Ensure that the child is safe. Tell the child's parents that you're making a report unless you suspect the parent is the one who's harming them. There are a lot of feelings that parents have when they find out that their child may have been sexually abused. So it's important for you if that's your child who has been sexually abused. It's important for you to reach out and get support too. The Child Help National Abuse Hotline, 1-800-422-4453, that'll be in the show notes, is a hotline that can help you um, understand the process of reporting to Child Protective Services and what to expect. And if you suspect that your child has been sexually abused, or if you are someone who has been sexually abused in childhood, there is help. And it doesn't matter how long ago it happened. As I mentioned in my my Sexual Assault Awareness Month Part 1 episode, there are sexual assault crisis centers in every state that can usually provide free services to survivors of sexual assault. And you can go on the RAIN website to find out where there is a sexual assault crisis center near you. Go to centers.rain.org. And remember, RAIN is R-A-I-N-N. And you can search by zip code to find the local sexual assault crisis center near you. You can also find a therapist um, if you don't want to go to the sexual assault crisis center or you've been there and maybe you've exhausted your free sessions. Um, You can find a therapist in your community who specializes in helping survivors of sexual abuse. It's important to work with a therapist who has experience in helping people who've been sexually abused. It's not just the same as any other type of mental health therapist. There's specific issues to survivors of childhood sexual abuse that it's very helpful to have someone who has that specific training. So I hope this information has been helpful to you. It's very upsetting to think that children are sexually abused, but it happens. It happens way too often, as I quoted earlier with all the statistics. The sooner that a child gets help after being sexually abused, the less time they have to suffer the effects of that traumatic experience throughout their lives. But it's never too late to get help. And if that's happened to you, just remember that you're not alone. Help is available. And check out those resources that are posted in the show notes for more information. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Therapy Chat. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com.
Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Thank you for listening to the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, visit Laura's website at www.lauraregan.lcswc.com.